Welcome to our How to Read a Birth Chart Like a Pro free live webinar. I'm Mike Lee Bryan from the Oraculous School of Astrology. And I'm really stoked about this topic because, like I said earlier, I love helping people learn things. And I also love helping people, you know, bring their things together in a bit more of a clearer system that will allow them to not only be better at what they do from an astrological perspective, but that will also allow their clients to have better experiences from an astrological perspective. Something I always tell my students at Oraculos is that as astrologers, more than astrologers by its own merit, we are specifically organizers of information. And I think that that's a very important thing that all of us need to remember that that's what we do. We organize information as astrologers. And the problem with astrology, and this is something that I first heard said by Robert Corain, who is a teacher of one of the systems of astrology that I teach, he said that the problem with astrology isn't that astrology has too little information, it's that astrology has too much information. And this notion of astrology being this never-ending babbling fount that continuously has more and more information to share is something that we can oftentimes get lost in. And very often, it's, it's very easy to get lost in the sauce of everything that is being said from an astrological perspective within the birth chart. And so one of the common things that people have said to me who have come to Oraculos to study is that, you know, I do all of this stuff first, I do all of the elements, then I do all of the modes, then I do the gender, then I do the this, and then I do the that, and then I do all of these things, then I do the South Node, then I do the Pluto, and then I do the North Node, and then I do the Hemispheric Emphasis, and all of these things that, you know, if that's something that you want to practice, then I think that that's, anything is fine from an astrological perspective in terms of what you want to practice. But I think that when we talk about astrology, and when we frame astrology within a larger classical context, we're really talking about something that is very heavily planetary based, not signs of the zodiac based, but planetary based. In the YouTube video I recently made, which said, um, you know, reasons why your sun, moon and rising aren't even a thing <laughs> in traditional astrology is because as we look towards our astrological past, we realize that a lot of astrology is really based on planets and planets in interaction with each other. So more than you are a um, Leo rising person, you're a person who has the sun occupying the antition of Mars, but also in opposition to Jupiter, also in the sesquiquadrate to Saturn, also in the conjunction with the moon. That is a more thorough astrological statement than just saying you have Leo rising, or than just saying your sun is in Aquarius, or than just saying you have uh, the moon in Gemini. Being able to talk about astrology from this planetary perspective is something that we've always seen within astrology from its antiquity. And it's something that has largely become a very lost subject, especially within this modern era of astrology where we oftentimes find ourselves doing everything with a birth chart other than actually doing the astrology. So this whole notion of counting the amount of elements, you know, how many planets are in a fire sign versus how many planets are in a water sign, how many planets are in mutable signs versus how many planets are in cardinal signs. This whole concept of this counting process that we have in astrology isn't really 
the core of our practice. And we don't really see that happening at any other point in our astrological history until like 30 years ago, basically. Actually, not 30 years ago, probably 80 years ago. But the point is, when we talk about astrology, we're talking about a subject that's been around for over 4,000 years. And so even the notion of something that just came on the scene 80 years ago is still rather young and still rather infantile, but we consider that within the larger context of our overall practice. Now, I'm not here for you to recreate your entire practice today. I'm here at the very minimum to help you organize what it is you already do, but with also giving you the encouragement to lean in to this notion of starting your astrological consultation by putting the astrology first. And if you're doing something that anybody on the side of the road can do. Basically, anybody can count up the amount of planets in the fire sign versus a water sign versus an earth sign versus whatever, and can read from a book what that means for a particular person. So that isn't really where we see our astrological powers really manifesting in a robust way within our practice. We really see our astrological powers manifesting in a robust way when we lean more into this planetary emphasis, as well as when we lean more into understanding how to interpret the relationships between things. And I'm going to show you how to do some of that today. Everything that we're covering today is covered fully in our two-year astrologer certification program. And so if that's something that you want to check out, you can check that out on the website. Our two-year astrologer certification program begins on the 1st of October 2022. So we're literally right around the corner. If that's something that you're interested in, then by all means, please feel free to check it out on the website. Today, our objectives are to help you get clear on the type of astrologer you want to be, to talk about this concept of the houses, houses versus no houses. If you're not already familiar with this notion of no houses, there are systems of astrology that don't use any houses at all. And those systems are Uranian astrology and cosmobiology. Neither of those systems really use houses. And they're both systems that we practice at Oraculos. And so I'll talk to you about that because the houses topic tends to be a very divisive topic within astrology in general. Then we'll talk about what a good reading should entail. So if you're thinking about giving someone a good reading, how do you do that, basically? So what should a good reading entail? Also, how to structure a client session. And then at the very end, like I said, I want to give uh, demonstrations. And I'm crossing my fingers. I'm making sure that that's something that we have time to do. But I really will try to fit that in as well. At OSA, we practice concrete event-based astrology. And what this means is that we focus on identifying who the native is and the concrete events that have occurred within their lives that have formed them into being exactly who they are. So who the native is, is the very first thing. Native, if you don't know, is the term for the person who's receiving the reading. So within traditional astrology, we have this term nativity, which has nothing to do with the birth of Jesus. <laughs> But we have this term nativity, and then secondarily, we have this term native. So the nativity is the story of your life, in other words, your birth chart, and the native is the person whose life the story is about, in other words, the person who is receiving the reading. So that's the type of astrology that we practice at Oraculos, concrete event-based astrology. Truthfully speaking, we could just call that traditional astrology because traditional astrology is both concrete as well as event-based. 
in all candor, we can't really say that it's purely traditional astrology, because even though on the one hand, while I am a thoroughly trained and purely bred traditional astrologer, I also do integrate Uranian astrology as well as cosmobiology within my practice. And I'm going to show you some of the ways how I integrate those other systems into my practice, because if you're going to, you know, mix traditions, which is something that we usually tend to frown upon, but if you're going to mix traditions in a way that actually makes sense, you have to have a sequence for how you're going to organize that mixing process. So at the end of the day, you really just want to focus on giving your clients a value-driven client experience. That's the most important thing. And, you know, truthfully, there was a time in astrology where astrologers used to base their prices based on what the local massage therapist was basing their prices on. And today, astrologers tend to charge that much more than your local massage therapist. And so this increase in price should also reflect an increase in value in terms of what we're actually giving to our clients. But very often we find that it doesn't necessarily reflect an increase in value. And that's a gap that we want to bridge in terms of how we organize that client's experience so that our clients ultimately have a better experience. One of the problems that people usually come to us with is that they say, Michael, I've been studying astrology for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. I've gone to every conference. I've purchased every single book, and I still don't feel confident to read a birth chart. Or I've been studying astrology for the last five years. I did this person's certification course. I know how to talk about all of these classical concepts in a theoretical way, but I don't actually know how to bring them to life in terms of my actual reading. So I find myself basically giving my clients a mini tutorial on what astrology is, but I don't actually find myself performing a confident act of astrology. And this is something that we hear time and time again, and many different iterations of this, this thing of people not feeling confident, regardless of how much they've studied, how much they've trained, and also this other thing of people not knowing where to start. And so at Oraculos, we're very famous for knowing where to start, because if you know where to start, and if you really isolate how you start giving a reading each and every time you give a reading, that's usually 80% of the problem. And so we're going to be talking about how to do that today. But before we get there, the first question for you is, what type of astrology do you offer? Now, initially, when I was making these slides, they said, what type of astrology do you practice? But I think that the practice part of that is less important than what type of astrology you offer your clients. And the reason for that is because you could practice a particular type of astrology that's really moving you and really speaking to you at the moment, but that may not necessarily be the same as what you offer. So for you, as a question that you should consider yourself is what type of astrology do you offer? Are you wanting to offer traditional astrology as your specific reading style? Are you wanting to offer radically modern astrology? Do you want to offer evolutionary astrology or psychological astrology or medical astrology or any of these subsets or micro branches of astrology? It's very important to first know what type of astrology you offer and then to ask yourself honestly, within the parameters of the astrology that I offer, what are the possibilities of this system of astrology? 
I know that there are certain possibilities of traditional Renaissance astrology that will never be the possibilities of modern evolutionary astrology. There are certain things that a modern evolutionary astrologer will say they are capable of doing, which I, as a traditional astrologer, will never even begin to possibly lean into saying I can do, nor would I want to do those things. So the very first thing you have to decide is what type of astrology do I offer? And then secondarily, what type of astrologer do you want to be? Now, this is a very kaleidoscopic question because astrology is a bit of a kaleidoscope. You can want to work with people more in a counseling capacity, in which case you might probably be leaning more into a psychological form of astrology or something more emotions or habits or behaviorally based. You might want to be a concrete event-based astrologer, in which case, yes, you want to talk about the psychological framework through which a person moves through the world, but at the same time, you also want to talk about the concrete events that have occurred within their lives that caused them to have that psychological framework in the first place. You might want to be more of a spiritual astrologer, in which you talk to people about all of the non-concrete things that occur within their lives at a deeper, spiritual, more subjective level, and that could really be your shtick. So at the end of the day, what type of astrology do you offer? What type of astrologer do you want to be? Now, fundamentally, I think no matter what the type of astrology we offer is, and also no matter what type of astrologer we want to be, our fundamental thing is that we should just want to be great astrologers. Astrology is a skill. It's like building a muscle, basically. And if you work out in a particular way for an extended period of time, you'll start to build a particular strength that you probably didn't have before. And insofar as we can build our astrology in that sort of way, and also insofar as our astrology ability is proportional to the amount of astrological grunt work we're doing in the background, then us saying that we want to master astrology isn't actually a far-fetched thing. Because anything that you do for an extended period of time, you should be able to master. Anything you do for an extended period of time, you should be able to be excellent at. Now, these words, excellence and mastery, in relationship to astrology, are words that we seldom find being used within this modern era of astrology in relationship to our craft. And I think that it, a part of that is because a lot of modern astrology tends to be very fuzzy around the edges, and words like mastery and excellence just make Things feel uncomfortable if you tend to practice an astrology that's fuzzy around the edges. So there's that. We don't really hear people talking about astrology in that way. We hear people talking about the journey of astrology and the lifelongness of astrology and how, you know, you're always at the beginning and you never really know enough. And while all of that is true, there's also a measure of excellence in astrology that all of us should be striving to attain to as professional astrologers. At a very baseline, there are very specific things that all of us should be able to do that represent our own measure of mastery and excellence within the astrology that we practice. And I think insofar as we're probably going to want to work with clients, that baseline should be, can you read the chart? Can you read the chart? Can you read that chart inside out? Can you read that chart 10 ways from Tuesday? Can you read that chart front way, back way, side way, reversed? Can you read that chart in your sleep? Can you read that chart in the shower? Can you read a chart? Is really the fundamentals of good astrology. You know, I, I have a student who said to me once, 
at the end of a semester, at the end of our Foundations of Classical Astrology semester, which is coming up again this October, she said, Michael, I had a friend who said to me, the only thing you need in order to really be an astrologer is you need to know psychology and you need to have a background in literature and mythology. Those are the things. <laughs> so spoiler alert, if you thought you had to study with anyone at all to do astrology, all you need to know word on the street is that all you need is to have a background in psychology, literature, and mythology. Can you even imagine? Can you even possibly imagine? It shocked the hell out of me. And that's what people oftentimes think. And so you find people coming into astrology with a wonderful psychological background. Maybe they have a degree in psychology. Maybe they have a background in counseling. Maybe they're a life coach or whatever, thinking that they can just do astrology. But astrology has so little to do with your ability to be a counselor. And it has very little to do with your understanding of human psychology. Astrology as a skill set by itself is its own beast. And it has its own sort of rules that govern it from within. So you cannot assume to superimpose your psychological background onto astrology and think that you will rise to the top and be the cream of the crop because that is absolute BS. In order to be an astrologer, you have to understand astrology inside and out in the same way as you know how to drive a car inside and out in the same way as you know how to tie your shoelaces inside and out. You have to understand astrology with that same level of depth. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter what sort of literature background, poetry background, mythology background, psychology background you have. When a person comes to you to read their chart, their expectation is that you can read their chart. You can have all of the beefers in the world, beefers, body language, eye contact, feedback, involvement, relaxation. You can have all of these tools and techniques that you got from your counseling training, but if you don't know how to read a chart, you will always end up falling short and you will always end up giving disappointing readings. So Disabuse yourself of that notion that all you need in order to be an astrologer is to have an understanding of mythology and psychology and literature and really know that astrology requires the same amount of grunt work as anything else you might be seeking to master. Now, houses versus no houses. The house topic is one of the very first things you're going to have to figure out for yourself as an astrologer because depending on you know what your astrological exposure is, you might potentially go in one house direction or another house direction. A wonderful friend of mine who I love very deeply from the bottom of my heart recently said she uses Placidus houses, <laughs> but she also sometimes uses equal houses and she also sometimes uses Coke houses and she also sometimes uses whole sign houses when she's ready. And that for me was the most stressful thing <laughs> in the world I could potentially hear. And a part of that for me is because astrology is fundamentally divinational. And when we say that astrology is divinational, we mean that there is a point at which you as an astrologer are establishing a relationship with the divine and you're saying to the divine, hey, speak to me via this established symbolic language that we are creating between the two of us. If me and the divine choose to speak to each other in Hebrew, then that is our established symbolic language. And I can choose to speak to the divine in Russian if I've agreed to speak to the divine in Ivrit. So if you are asking the divine and you say, Hashem, speak to me via a particular language, this is the language I want for us to have this communication through, then you can't actually switch it up because you know, you're, you're not really creating a framework 
that allows for that communication to make sense. If you speak Spanish, I can speak to you in French and assume that we'll be able to understand each other. So fundamentally, as astrologers, there's this baseline understanding that we are establishing a symbolic language between ourselves and the divine. And frustratingly, the divine will speak to us via whichever symbolic language we choose to speak to it through. And the reason I say this is frustrating is because we find that the divine will speak to you if you use Placidus houses. The divine will speak to you if you use Coke houses. The divine will speak to you if you use Alcabicius, Regimontanus, Pampanus, whole sign houses, even though for me, the whole sign houses thing is a definite no-no, but the divine will even speak to you if you use whole sign houses. So the point of the matter is the divine will speak to you via any symbolic language you choose to establish that communication with the divine through, but you have to choose one. You really, really have to choose one because we remember that it isn't that astrology has too little information, it's that astrology has too much information, and it usually doesn't serve anyone at all. When we look at a chart, how it shows up in Placidus, then Regimontanus, then Coke, then Campanus, then Hold Sign, and then Equal Houses, particularly not if you're doing that with a client. Your client is coming to you from an astrological perspective to guide their path through reading their chart that probably they don't understand. And so when you come into that with your own confusion and saying, oh, I want to research, and here's what your chart says in Campanus, and here's what your chart says in Coke, and your chart says you have awful money issues if you use Placidus, but your chart says you have amazing money issues if you use Regiomontanus, then you're really not going to give that person the opportunity to ground in anything. And far too frequently, people leave astrological services feeling like, what did I just spend my money on? I have a story about that, and I'm not going to go into it right now, but I have stories. Anyway, so houses or no houses. First thing is, choose a house system. At Oraculos, we use Regiomontanus. We use Regiomontanus as our primary house system because that is the system of houses that was used within the Renaissance. And insofar as our traditional approaches to astrology are based on Renaissance astrology, then we want to use the Renaissance house system. It's just that simple. And it's not a matter of, well, my teacher did it, so therefore I do it or whatever. It's a matter of honoring traditions. And today there's a lot of people talking about honoring traditions and honoring ancestors and blah, 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 and all of these stuff. And so if you're going to use a type of astrology that's rooted in a particular period, then you also need to be using the house system that's appropriate for that period. And the house system that we use is Regimontanus, because from a natal astrological perspective, the way how we delineate a chart is based on Renaissance principles that were established by Jean-Baptiste Morin in the 17th century in his book, Astrologia Gallica, book 21. But also, we use that as the basis of interacting with all traditional astrology. So from there, we can go backward in time and talk about how to integrate medieval astrology into that. And we can go forward in time and talk about how to integrate midpoints into that from a Uranian astrology perspective. But at the end of the day, We've chosen something, you should choose something too. So many systems of astrology utilize houses. Some like Uranian astrology and cosmobiology don't. Which way should we turn? First way to turn is to choose one. Choose one, period. And then if you're going to do something that is a housal, I don't know if that's a word, but if you're going to do something that does not use houses, like integrate midpoints or those sorts of things, midpoints or fixed stars or things that really aren't house-based, 
then I dare say you build that into a system so that you can know how to do that. And I'll show you what our system is as we go on. Once again, we're trying to give our clients a value-driven client experience because that's the most important thing. People are paying you money in order to render them a service and you need to be able to give them a value-driven experience that actually makes sense at the end of the day. Next thing is giving a good reading. Houses or not, the topics of the houses are a good way of organizing the information that you give clients during a reading. Personality, health, finances, family, love, and career. Those are the things that every reading should entail. Now, I realize that a lot of people feel uncomfortable about the health part of things. So fine. If you don't want to bring in health within the context of your reading, you can skip that. I don't think that you should skip it, but I think that you can skip it insofar as if you're going to be talking about that, you need to have more of a background. At Oraculos, the students who are in level zero at Oraculos learn the foundations of medical astrology because that's a first house topic. So if you're going to be using the houses, like I said, the topics of the houses are a good way of organizing information. So even when I'm practicing Uranian astrology, which uses no houses at all, I'm still in my mind going through it from a house-to-house -house perspective. The first thing I want to do is I want to talk about this person's personality and their health, because that's a first house topic. The second thing I want to do is I want to talk about this person's finances, because that's a second house topic. The third thing I want to do is I want to talk about this person's family, because that's a third house, fourth house, tenth house topic. The next thing I want to do is I want to talk about this person's love life, because that's a seventh house topic. And the final thing I want to do is I want to talk about this person's career, because that's going to be a tenth house topic again when viewed through that particular lens. That's how we organize our readings at Oraculos. That's how our students do readings in terms of the final exam. And I think that that's a really good way to just bring your information together so that even if you're not using houses specifically, you are at least following the model that the houses provide. Now, you might ask, well, hey, Michael, why do you skip over the fifth house or the sixth house or the eighth house or the ninth house or the eleventh house or the twelfth house? And the reason for that is because those usually aren't the major areas that are manifesting within a person's life. It's interesting that, for the most part, people's major life issues have to do with the angles. So the first house, personality and health. The fourth house, family. The seventh house, love. The 10th house, career, as well as money, which is the second house. So more often than not, when people come to me, at least for a reading, those are the houses that I specifically focus on. And if there are other houses that are greatly populated or other houses that are coming up as very strong factors within the reading, then of course, you don't ignore those houses. But in general, something that I'd like to give to you is that if you're going to be giving a reading, whether you use houses, whether you don't use houses, try to follow the same model that the houses provide, going in that anti-clockwise direction around the chart, from the first house to the second house, to the fourth house, to the seventh house, to the tenth house, and your readings will become that much more organized. Now, one hour long, one hour long, one hour long, it's the most important thing I can ever possibly say to you, a reading is one hour long. You might be upset about that <laughs> because you might say, well, shit, Michael, I can't fit everything into an hour. However, that one hour is a wonderful test for yourself 
to make it all fit in there. One hour long at Aratulos, we enjoy using tight aspects. We prefer tighter orbs on our aspects and we prefer tighter orbs on everything because tight is right. And similarly, when it comes to a reading, one hour long is really the amount of time that you need in order to perform a confident act of astrology. When I was in counseling school and we would talk about um, sessions and what it meant to give a client a session, the lecturer who I was studying with at the time, she said, at the 50 minute mark, I'm already winding down that reading. I'm already winding down that counseling session within that last five minutes from 50 to 55 minutes. I'm getting the client feedback and we're coming to a place of rapport so that we are ending on the hour mark. This is something that we find a lot of astrologers, especially younger astrologers, don't have the ability to hold themselves to. One of those things has to do with lack of confidence in personal ability. Because you feel as if you lack confidence in your personal ability to perform a confident act of astrology, you feel like, well, I need to give this person as much as possible so that this person can actually get a value-driven reading but that isn't actually how you provide a value-driven reading. I've had students who said that they've gave readings for three hours long, a three hour long reading, which is actually quite ridiculous because usually even at the end of one hour, you start to decentralize and lose the ability to maintain a person's stamina and maintain their momentum. And very often, if you talk to someone who's received a three hour long reading and say to them, hey, what do you remember from that reading? It's very difficult for them to put together the specific pieces that they remember from the reading because the reading went on too long. It was too Neptunian, too nebulous, and it didn't actually have a sense of gravity that kept it and that held it together. So that's the first thing. Giving a long reading is usually a sign of a lack of confidence. Also, giving a long reading, a reading that goes on forever, doesn't actually respect your time, and it also doesn't really respect the client's time. No one can actually pay you for three hours of your time, especially if you're already using one hour before the reading in order to prepare for the reading itself, no one can actually pay you for the four hours, the one hour of preparation, as well as the three hours of the reading itself. And you start to lose money. The minute you go past that one hour mark, you actively begin to lose money in terms of what you're doing because you're not actually getting paid for that extra time. So one hour is a wonderful test and I challenge you to lean into it. If you're someone who gives readings for an hour and 15 minutes or you're someone who gives readings for an hour and a half or you give 2.5 super deluxe readings, narrow it down, tighten it up bring it into the space of one hour because one hour is really the standard, not just within our astrological community, but even beyond our astrological community as well. So we need a sequence within the sequence. So this is what I was talking about earlier. Do you use multiple techniques? Do those techniques span multiple traditions? You need to get organized and stick to that formula every single time you give a reading. Now, this last piece about sticking to a formula every single time you give a reading is a very important thing for me in particular. And if you ever get a reading from any of my students at Oraculos, you should get the same structure of reading that you would get if you paid for a reading with me. I was telling uh, someone or a class a week ago that there 
was this conference, the ESAR conference recently in Denver, Colorado. And people would come up to me at the conference and be like, hey, Michael, I got a reading with a student of yours. I booked it through your website. And I'd ask them, why would you book a reading with a student of mine through the website if you could just book a reading with me? And the resounding feedback was always the same because we wanted to see the quality of education you provide those students. And that always gave me goosebumps because it's like, wow, that is the ultimate test that not just is a person wanting to receive a reading with me, they're actually choosing not to receive a reading with me, to receive a reading with my students in order to see the quality of education that those students are receiving. And within that, the reading should be the same. The reading from one person to another person to another person should really be the same, especially if you're following this natural system that exists within the birth chart, which is to start from the ascendant and to make your way in a counterclockwise direction through the houses of the chart. And like I said, usually there are some houses that are going to be more important than others. So for example, first house, second house, who doesn't want to know about their shmoney? Everyone wants to know about their shmoney. I want to know about my shmoney. So first house, second house, you definitely need to talk about that. Then family is the other big issue. Then love is usually the other big issue. And then career is usually the other big issue. If you're really following that and giving people commentary from an astrological perspective on these major issues of their lives, then, I mean, truthfully, from one astrologer to the next, we should all kind of have a homogenous approach to how we do that so that clients can receive uh, an internally satisfying organized experience of receiving commentary on those parts of their life. So every single time you have to use the same formula. Now, every single time there's also a psychic component, psychic, P-S-Y-C-H-I-C. There's a psychic component also to doing this because anything that you do repeatedly over and over again, non-stop, ad infinitum, it builds a psychic momentum within you. And that psychic momentum that it builds within you unlocks things within you that we call um, extrasensory perception or clairvoyance or um, our intuition. It unlocks this deeper thing within us because we would have gotten so deeply into the groove of familiarity in terms of that process that we do every single time that our brain is able to put together pieces that it probably wouldn't be able to put together if we're falling on our feet every time we see a reading and trying to make it up on the spot as we go. Rubric is my very favorite word at Oraculos. There's a rubric for everything. There's a rubric for horary astrology. There's a rubric for natal astrology. There's a rubric for interpreting a solar return chart. If I could give people a rubric for blowing their nose, I would give people a rubric for blowing their nose because you have to have a system. Because your system, whatever system you're using, is the first thing that gives you a sense of direction and a center of gravity. And if you have no center of gravity, you really don't have the ability to perform a confident act of astrology. If your sequence does not give your clients high levels of value, ditch it and find a system that does. So if you've been putzing around with multiple things and you say, okay, in this reading, I'm going to try this thing. And in this other reading, I'm going to try this other thing. And you find yourself putzing through several versions of a thing, but none of the versions of the thing that you find yourself doing actually gives people a feeling of feeling grounded and stabilized at the end of their session with you, then ditch it and find a system that actually does. Astrology is a recommendation system. So if your chart delineation system sucks, you will not get recommended and you will not get clients. And I think ultimately, you know, astrology is one of 
the most booming industries within the spiritual and self-help industry today. I think I was reading an article the other day that said that astrology is a $4.5 billion industry. I think they were also lumping the tarot readers <laughs> into that as well, because as we all know, the tarot never discriminated against nobody. And the tarot has always made people feel welcome. Whereas astrology, you have to know the math and you have to know what's a sextile versus a conjunction versus a semi-square. So astrology has always been kind of like for the posh. It's always been for the hoi polloi. And astrology has always been a little bit something exclusive where you really have to put in that extra effort in order to understand how to do astrology well. Truthfully speaking, you should really put in that extra effort in order to understand how to use the tarot well as well, but that's a different story entirely. So, But in this figure of the $4.5 billion, I think that that includes people within the tarot industry as well as people within the astrology industry and just lumping all of these mystical, magical systems of self-knowledge into the same category. But it doesn't matter. It's still $4.5 billion. And if you split $4.5 billion amongst three different systems of mystical self-knowledge, you still end up with money, money. So the point of the matter is astrology is a recommendation system, and you really want to make sure that you're providing readings for people that people can actually lean into and that people can actually feel like they're getting value from it. Because if your reading doesn't hit the mark, then you won't get clients. And that's actually the only thing that matters. It doesn't matter how good your marketing is. It doesn't matter how good your promotion is. It doesn't matter how good your YouTube channel is. If you don't give good readings, then you can't actually get clients. And good readings are usually based on accuracy. A teacher of mine once said that, Michael, I can't make a living from 70% accuracy. And that hit me like a bag of bricks because truthfully, I couldn't make a living either with 70% accuracy. There is no living to be made from 70% accuracy because 70% accuracy says that you're, you're, you're basically almost at the average mark where you're not really taking the ball home in the way that it should. So as astrologers, our batting average should really be anywhere between 80% and 95%, knowing that you you are very likely not going to get everything accurate, but that should really be a batting range in terms of how accurately you are interpreting this person's chart. And there are many ways to actually measure that for yourself, but we don't really have the time to get into that because I do want to read a chart for you today. But just remember that astrology is a recommendation system. Your next client is dependent on your first client. And we really need to honor that feedback loop so that we're actually striving to get better and better at the astrology that we offer. Structuring a good reading. We spoke about this already, but one of the things that I've recently been leaning into more is this notion of structuring a reading as a conversation versus a narrative. Now, I had the reading the other day. I'm probably going to delete this from the recording, but it wasn't a good reading. <laughs> it actually was not at all viscerally within my gut of guts. It was not a good reading. And furthermore, within the reading, this person didn't really allow me to talk at all. Mm. Ooh, I just swallowed that right back. It was a sneeze. It was only a sneeze. Anyway, this person didn't really allow me to talk at all, which is fine. I don't really need to talk in the reading because I don't really need to steal anybody's thunder or, you know, destroy the magic. 
I like to be amazed as well as anybody else. So yeah, put on a magic show for me. Let me pay you my money and you put on a magic show for me. However, the show wasn't magical. <laughs> the show wasn't magical to begin with. Therefore, the fact that the show wasn't magical and that the reading itself was lackluster were both rather disappointing. I still love this person. Probably wouldn't pay this person again, but I still love this person because I believe in this person as a person, but the reading didn't actually hit the nail for me personally. I received another reading once from someone else and it, it, it was too much actually of the reverse. And the reverse was, it was too much of a conversation. And I'm like, hey, but that's actually not what I'm here for. I want you to tell me things about me. I don't want for me, I don't want for you to give me a prompt and then I fill in all the blanks for you because then where is your work? What what have you actually what is the work that you've actually done? Which is why I fundamentally don't believe in astrologers having intake forms. Because when you have an intake form and you allow that person to give you their entire life story on that piece of paper and you just regurgitate to them exactly what they put on their intake form, then what where is the muscularity? Where is the robustness of your actual practice? What what work have you done? Why do you deserve this person's $150? Which is a very important question that we should be asking ourselves, especially if we're charging people that type of money. So insofar as a reading is concerned, you can read, you can build a reading as a conversation without destroying the magic of you actually pulling from that person's chart information that's present within that person's chart that you would not have been privy to knowing previously, or you could build a reading as a narrative. And the narrative approach is something that I tend to enjoy. I give my clients both options, but I enjoy the narrative approach because when someone says, hey, just read my chart and tell me what you see, it allows me to tell a story and show how all of these things fit together from an astrological perspective. Now, I might be wrong, I might be very wrong. I'm not saying that every time I give a reading, I, I'm always going to be right. But at the end of the day, I think it, it, it giving your client the option to have either one of those things is something that's worth doing. A narrative is a spoken or written account of connected events. It's a story, basically. I, like I said, these days, I've... I, lean into the conversational model more these days. And I give my clients the options because ultimately I think that we should all give our clients the options and have the ability to deliver on either. All the time I start a reading and I say, hey, what would make this make the most sense for you? What actually feels the best for you? Would you like for me to just read your chart and tell you what I see there and you uh, interject from time to time when you feel it's appropriate? Or would you like for us to build this as more of a discussion or as more of a dialogue? And sometimes people choose the dialogue version and sometimes people choose to just have the astrology wash over them. But you should be able to be facile and be comfortable in doing both things. Once again, all of this is contained within our two-year astrologer certification program, which begins on the 1st of October, 2022. And you can sign up for that over at oraculosastrology.com. And I think Liz told me earlier, we have 10 slots left. So if you want to jump in, then please, by all means, sign up for our upcoming astrologer certification program, which begins the 1st of October, 2022. So that, you know, we can flesh this out a little bit more for you within the context of the actual program. However, now what I would like to do is take one of those charts from Liz, just to give you the ability to look over my shoulders from an astrological perspective and show you what I do in my house at the Oraculo School of Astrology.
For those of you who are going to look at this chart later, the information is the 14th of April, 1957, at 12.37 a.m., so midnight, 37, in Newton, Massachusetts. And the ascendant should be 11 degrees Capricorn. We would label this webinar client. And the first thing that we would do in terms of the system that we use, once again, your system doesn't have to be our system, but the system that we use is we would first take note of the ascendant. And the reason why we take note of the ascendant is because, first of all, it's the first house. Where else will you start? There's this notion within astrology today that we should pay attention to the sun, the moon, and the rising, and fine, you know, whatever floats your boat, but that isn't actually something that we find within traditional astrology. Traditional astrology is wholly ascendant-based because the ascendant tells us who has this chart, and then from that, we find where that person is manifesting and what things are happening to that person within their lives. So the first thing is the ascendant. Now, the ascendant is at 11 degrees of Capricorn, 28 minutes. 11 degrees Capricorn, 28 minutes. And I know in my brain, well, the next thing that we do is we take a look at the hidden aspects to the ascendant. The ascendant is going to tell us what's occurring, not only within that person's physical constitution, but also what's occurring within that person's environment. The ascendant, in case you aren't aware, is created from our local horizon where we are born intersecting with the zodiac or the ecliptic. We know another word for zodiac is ecliptic. So your ascendant is fully a product of your location. Therefore, the ascendant isn't just your persona. The ascendant is also the environment into which you find yourself born. So the hidden aspects to the ascendant are also important for us to take a look at because aspects to our ascendant give us insight into the sort of environment we find ourselves born into. The fourth house does that as well, but the aspects to the ascendant even more so does that. So we want to take a look at those things. So the hidden aspects, first of all, are Antisha. Once again, this is something that we teach in our level zero at Oraculos, which starts on October 1st. Antisha, because Antisha represents literally the bottom of the barrel in terms of foundational things that an astrologer should know. So we talk about Antisha, which represents reflection points in the zodiac that reflect our ascendant. 11 degrees Capricorn is reflected by 19 degrees of Sagittarius. So I look in this chart, I see, is there anything at 19 Sagittarius? The answer to that is no. I look on the other side to see if there's anything at 19 Sag. The answer to that is no. So I have no Antisha or contra-Antisha relationship. So that's not available. Next thing is octiles. Octiles are aspects from the fourth harmonic aspect family. So by fourth harmonic aspects, we're referring to squares, oppositions, and conjunctions, but also semi-squares, which are a half of a square, and sesquiquadrates, which are a half a square plus a half a square plus a half a square, those aspects are also very important aspects as well, because the hard aspects are aspects of manifestation. They make things happen. So we want to see what things are happening within this person's environment. So I know that 11 degrees of Capricorn by octile aspect is also going to be 11 degrees cardinal equals 26 degrees fixed. So I look in this chart to see, does this person have anything at 26 degrees fixed? I see the answer to that is no, and I leave that alone. Now, the final thing is declination. Declination used to be a very important thing in astrology back in the day. It stopped being an important thing 
within the last 20 years or so. I don't know why, but declination is most important. In your chart, if you have planets that are together by declination, meaning that they're either in a parallel relationship with each other on one side of the equator or in a contra-parallel relationship to each other, on exact opposite sides of the equator, those planets are basically either in a conjunction or an opposition. And would you ignore seeing a conjunction or an opposition in your chart? The answer is probably no. So we want to take a look at our declinations as well. So by declination, we have the ascendant. I'll just annotate this so that you can see this more clearly. By declination, what we see down here is that we have the ascendant of this person in a contra-parallel relationship to Pluto, ascendant Pluto, which is big information. And how that looks up here is we have the ascendant contra-parallel to Pluto. That's basically like this person having Pluto opposite their ascendant, which wouldn't you want to know if you had Pluto exactly opposite your ascendant? The answer to that is probably yes. So I'm going to write that down over here that this person has Pluto, and I'm just going to do that. Pluto ascendant. Now, after we finish the hidden stuff, we go for the major stuff, major stuff. And the major stuff are the obvious things. And what the obvious things are, are, first of all, are there planets in the ascendant? The answer to that is technically no. And the reason why the answer to that is no is because this Chiron is having what we call a five degree rule relationship to the second house cusp. And what that means is that if a planet is within five degrees of the next house cusp and in the same sign as the next house cusp, that planet is considered to be in the next house. Therefore, this isn't a first house Chiron. This is a second house Chiron. So we don't have any planets whatsoever in the ascendant. So planets in the ascendant, the answer to that is no. Next thing is aspects to the ascendant. And then after we're done this, I promise you we're going to start reading this chart. The next thing is the aspects to the ascendant. Aspects to the ascendant are going to be important because the ascendant tells us who a person is, but the ascendant also tells us what environmental things are directly impacting that person within their lives. So aspects to the ascendant, I hold this 11 degrees Capricorn in my brain and I rush around the chart. This is too far, this is too far, this is too far, this is too far, this is having a trine. So we have Mercury, 120, the ASC. Mercury in this chart is also ruling the sixth house. So I'm going to put in brackets that Mercury is L6 because Mercury is the Lord of the sixth house. Mercury rules Gemini. Gemini is on the cusp of the sixth house. This one is too far. We don't take trines to the nodes. The nodes work best through conjunctions or squares. We do not take trines to the nodes, trines or sextiles. So this is a non-factor. Good, so we have nothing really in aspect of the ascendant save for our Mercury. And then the final thing that we want to do is the ruler of the ascendant. Who is ruling this chart? Ruler of the ascendant. And the rule of the ascendant is Saturn. Saturn at 13 degrees of Sagittarius retrograde. Saturn is also having a five degree rule relationship with our 12th house, which means that the Saturn is in the 12th house, because if a planet is within five degrees of the next house cusp, and in the same sign as the next house cusp, we consider that planet to be in the next house. So this Saturn is here in the 12th 
house. Now, the very first place we're going to start with this is the ascendant. So what I'll say to you is that with 11 degrees Capricorn rising, you have a cardinal earth sign ruled by Saturn rising. And that says to us that Earth is your chief operating system within this lifetime. That's the last time I'm going to mention this Earth situation at all. I'm not going to mention the Earth again because I only want to use it as a gateway into talking about the chart. When you have Earth as your chief operating system, this can make you as a person to be someone who's more practical, someone who's more stable, someone who cares more about the solid ground beneath your feet. All of these things become very important to all the Earth people in general. And these are things that could very well be important to you. Now, other things within your chart are going to either corroborate that or dismiss that. But in general, these are things that we find coming up for someone who has an earth sign rising period. Now, we also know that the part of the earth is that the earth doesn't necessarily like to move. So the earth doesn't necessarily do too good with change. And that can cause this person to be very jostled at least or at the maximum within the context of their own nervous system in terms of how they handle change because earth people less than any other sign of the zodiac don't really handle change in a way that seems to be very good for them from a health perspective. So that's the very first thing. Now, the next thing is, this is a cardinal earth sign. Cardinal, because we know that Capricorn is one of the cardinal signs. And the cardinality says that as a result of you needing security within your life as a thing within general, you can be someone who strives to attain that security by whatever means necessary. So there is a strivingness that we find with Capricorn as a cardinal earth sign that isn't necessarily present within the other earth signs in particular. Now, because this Capricorn is ruled by Saturn, here's another layer. And the other layer being ruled by Saturn is that there really isn't an expectation of being given any handouts within life, because that's something that we find within Saturn rule signs in general, both Capricorn and Aquarius, there isn't an expectation of someone coming in and doing it for you. You feel as if you have to do it yourself. And this is very often the thing that manifests within these people. They feel as if they don't really have as much support as others. They feel as if they don't really have as much environmental home nourishment and love as other people. And therefore, they find themselves having to figure out their way in the world on their own. Now, this Capricorn is ruled by this Saturn in Sagittarius. And this Saturn in Sagittarius retrograde in the 12th house is a very complicated Saturn. It's complicated from a health perspective as a primary thing because the health houses that we don't necessarily like in astrology tend to be the 6th house, the 8th house, and the 12th house. So that would already be a bit of a red flag for me from a health perspective. The 12th house usually represents things of a more chronic nature that a person might be experiencing. And when we have this within the mutable signs, that could be something that's directly having an impact on this person's nervous system specifically. And once again, we already already started by saying that this is a person who isn't necessarily dealing with change in the best of ways. And a part of why change isn't dealt with in the best of ways in this chart is because when we have the ruler of the ascendant in the 12th house in general, it can make us feel as if we are born without skin. 
So we can feel as if we're that much more vulnerable than other people around us. It can make us feel as if we're that much more sensitive than other people around us. And it can make it very difficult for us to really have a great sense of a center of gravity that we're moving from. When we have the, the Saturn in this retrograde situation here, it also is indicating that this is a person whose interests are vast and very multifaceted. And that can also be a part of this person's difficulty in terms of regulating themselves from a nervous system perspective, because there's far too many things that this person is doing in life in general, which on the one hand, we call that multitasking, but on another hand, we call that the very formula for a person burning themselves out. And so we see this notion of this person burning herself out just by virtue of the condition surrounding this Saturn. Now, this Saturn is also ruling this person's second house. Now, when we have the ruler of the first house also being the ruler of the second house, then we have a bit of a mashup between the two of them. And so the Saturn in the 12th house ruling the second house in the state that it's in is saying to us that from a financial perspective, burning through money is something that can be one of this person's biggest problems or one of this person's biggest challenges within life. And how to stabilize money and make money work for her is also the karmic area where she's working out most of her karma within this lifetime. We have the Saturn in having an oppositional relationship with Mars, Mars opposite Saturn. Mars is ruling this person's 11th house as well as the 10th house. And these things are saying that the money that I make from my job, which is the 11th house, doesn't actually feel supportive to me having a great sense of stability in general, as well as my job itself doesn't necessarily feel as if it has the ability to make me feel supported and stable within my life in general. So when we see something like this with a person having the ruler of their ascendant in opposition to the ruler of their 10th house, that's already creating a bit of a friction within the professional or the career section of this person's life. Now, another thing that this indicates, because we know that the ruler of the 10th house is also going to indicate the mother, Another thing that this shows us is that there could be a very contentious relationship between this person and her mother, just in general, that the two of them aren't seeing eye to eye, or that the mother doesn't understand her, or that there is a feeling that there is always a sense of being at odds with the maternal figure within this person's life. And that's what we see because we have the ruler of the 10th house of the mother in opposition to the ruler of the first house. And we have the mother here within the native's sixth house, which means that issues surrounding the mother can be some of the greatest points of stress within this person's life. That there's a stressful relationship with the mother. The mother is probably overstressed and overtaxed and overworked. And as a result of that, can't really show up in a very maternal or in the best of ways from that perspective. And that's causing there to be a central piece within this person's life of there being a complicated relationship there with her mother and how the mother is manifesting. Now, so that's the, the main thing that we see with this Saturn-Mars combination. From a medical astrology perspective, the Saturn-Mars could have to do with inflammation in general because we have Mars 
We have the Saturn ruling the person's physical body in opposition with Mars. And so the Saturn Mars in that regard can indicate things like inflammation. The Mars is in Gemini. That could be inflammation of the hands and the wrists and the carpal tunnels and all of these things. It can also possibly have something to do with bronchitis as well, because Mars in Gemini could also be an inflammation within the lungs and then inflammation in terms of how I'm breathing. So that's another thing that we see there as well. Now, we finished the first house, we finished the second house. Our next order of business would be to go to the fourth house to see what's going on within this person's fourth house of family specifically. And here we have the Taurus on the cusp of the fourth house, which tells us that the Venus is going to be the planet that rules the fourth house. Venus is in the third house in this chart. The fourth house represents the father from a traditional astrological perspective. And usually when we have the father in the third house, it says it's the equivalent of having our father in our 12th house. And the reason for that is because the third house is the 12th house of the father. And so this is something that often comes up when a person feels like they don't really have access to their father growing up at all, or father is present within the household and home, but he's a mute sort of person. He isn't actually showing up in a very paternal sort of way, or maybe he's dropping himself down in the front of the television, but he isn't actually someone who I feel as if I have a direct line of connection with, and therefore I feel like I have a 12th house sort of relationship to my father. Now, not only do we have the father representing the fourth house ruler in his own 12th house, but we even have the son as the universal significator of the father in the father's 12th house as well, which is a further confirmation that as far as the father is concerned, there could be a great sense of disconnect in terms of this person and her ability to really access the parental figure within her life, which is made complicated only by the fact that we also see difficulty between her accessing the maternal figure within her life as well. So maybe the story surrounding both the parents is a major issue of stress within this person's life. Now, speaking about stress between the parents, we also see the son in a quincunx relation. That's not a quincunx, Michael. Don't be stupid. I was <laughs> going to just say something. But we also see that this person is having uh, the moon in opposition to the sun, which for the most part isn't necessarily something that's overly important in general, because it's a universal sort of thing. The moon and the sun were in opposition for everybody who was being born at that time. However, this usually can be a thing that indicates another um, issue surrounding the paternal figure in general or an issue surrounding both parents not necessarily seeing eye to eye with each other. If it were a quincunx, sun at 24 Aries with the moon at 24 degrees of Virgo or the moon at 24 degrees of Scorpio, then that is something that we oftentimes find when someone has divorce between the parents. So that is it in terms of the father. We have the father that could be present, but still absent in terms of not being able to show up in a very robust paternal way. We also have the father over here in our declination table. We have the son in a parallel relationship to both Chiron as well as Neptune. And when we have Sun, Chiron, Neptune, it could say that a big part of the wounding within this person's life has to do with not just the father, but with men in general. 
men in general, because usually within our charts, when we see things happening to our son, then that can also be something that is impacting our father as well as our husband if this were, uh, if this were a um, heterosexual relationship. So that's the information that we're getting from the father. And we see the central line of discontent between the person and the maternal figure over here. So that's the main thing from a family perspective. Clearly, I'm trying to package something that would take two hours into your last seven minutes with me. So I am speeding through it a bit, but hopefully you're getting a sense of what's going on. Now, similarly, we have this move, this Saturn in opposition to the Mars, and the Mars is ruling this person's third house, which is this person and her siblings. So not only might there be a separation within the family unit in general, which is causing the family space to be a very stressful environment, we see stressful environment because we have Mercury ruling the house of stress in this person's third house of family. So not only is the family unit being a stressful environment because of potentially the paternal situation, but we also see it being a stressful environment because of the relationship with the sibling. Now, very often the sibling is represented by the third house. So the opposition between the Mars and the Saturn could be saying that there was also an oppositional relationship there as well in terms of that part of the family unit. So we're going to move on. We're going to take a look now at this Mercury here. And we can say that when we have the ruler of the sixth house in the fourth house, this can do one of two things. The sixth house is representing our father's siblings. And so when we have our father's siblings in our own fourth house of home, it could be that dad's siblings probably lived with us. That can be another part of how this manifests within a person's life when you have the rule of the sixth house in the fourth house. Now we're going on to talk about the seventh house of love and romance. In horary astrology, when we see Uranus in the seventh house, we often consider that to be a divorce signature. Uranus in the seventh, from a horary astrology perspective, is one of the divorce signatures that this person if married, this isn't the first marriage because Uranus is in the seventh house. That's a horary consideration. Often we find this manifesting in natal astrology as well. That if a person is having the Uranus conjuncts the seventh house more so, then that can be a divorce signature. And if Uranus is just posited in the seventh house in the same sort of way, that can indicate the same thing. Now, we want to see, you know, how far are we willing to throw this? Because that's a pretty big statement. So let's go and check it out. The If we were to specifically talk about the marriage or the relationship that this person might have had, we'll go to the ruler of that seventh house. And the ruler of the seventh house is going to be this moon at 20 degrees of Libra in the ninth house. Very often, when we have a person in our ninth house, that represents a person from a foreign country. So if we have the ruler of our seventh house in our ninth house, then that could be indicating that the person who I'm meeting is someone who I meet from abroad. I'm falling in love with or meeting a foreigner, could pretty much be how that manifests. Now, the direct aspects that we see to this moon are that the moon is in opposition to the 
son, which we spoke about earlier. The son is ruling the partner's second house of money, which could say that the partner that I attract to myself isn't necessarily someone who knows how to handle their own financial life or their own financial story in the best of ways, which is only made more complicated by the fact that my own financial story is also manifesting in a way that tends to be complicated. And so we see the financial karma coming up once again as a big part of their relationship. We also see the moon in an opposition to the Venus, and the Venus is ruling this person's own siblings. And so within this lady's birth chart, that can indicate that the, the partner who I'm having is coming into my life, but also manifesting as bringing in problems between that person and their own siblings. The, the story between my partner and their siblings is manifesting as a very big deal for me of that being a place of contention within that relationship. Now, to wrap this up, because we're coming to the end of our time, the very last thing that I would check quickly, just to give you an idea of how that is looking, is we would go over here to reports. I go down here. If I'm talking about love, for example, I go down here to my midpoint listing. And if I wanted to check up the story of this person's love, I would check out certain midpoints having to do with love. Sun, moon, midpoint, for example, 2210. I go on, I check out 2210 to see if anything is happening there. And I see that there's nothing really occupying the sun, moon, midpoint. I go further and I see that we have sun, Chiron over here. My eyes just caught that. We have sun, Chiron which are pretty close. We also have Sun, Chiron, Venus, which are pretty close, all of which has to do with the story of this person's love life. And with the Chiron there, it could be talking about being in a relationship that either causes this person to feel a greater sense of isolation in general, or it could be being in a relationship with someone who needs us to take care of them. So that could be that the partner is getting sick or the partner comes into our lives sick, or that partner comes into our lives with problems that are quite substantial. And those problems really begin to characterize the entirety of the relationship that the two of us have. And like I said, as a final thing, we also have the Uranus there in the seventh house in general. And Uranus has to do with multiple relationships, but in general, it can also be a part of the thing that causes people to separate ultimately. Okay. Um, <laughs> there, there we go. Hi, how are you? Hi, good. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Okay. Awesome. So we, we are literally having no time left at all, but can you just take five minutes just to let us know how that landed for you? Yeah, it was, <clears throat> I'm kind of processing it all right now because there was so much, especially um, to do with the first house and the family uh, things that you mentioned that were so spot on that it, it, it's, I'm almost kind of sitting here right now going, whoa, that's huge um, to hear that. Just happens that also when you got into um, the relationship part, I am divorced and I did have a partner that I ended up having to take care of more in an emotional way. So that really hit home. And the financial part is that I'm really stuck in that financial part of it. And it has been difficult, probably not so much that because I'm very good at handling finances, which might have been a reason why I've chosen the pathway that I did. Um, but I still hold on to um, financial, uh, issues, I should say very, very strongly. And I, they sometimes feel very restrictive to me. So yeah, that was, that was amazing. 
Amazing. So thank you so much, Michael. Awesome, awesome, awesome. And I just want to check in because I, I, I like to know the things that I got wrong as well, because I think that that's a part of my own continued learning. What, what are the things that just didn't land for you at all? Um, something about the paternal siblings that really didn't um, come into being. I'm trying to think if there was um, something else. It was definitely the maternal and paternal um, issues that you pointed out that were so, so on spot, um, really not too much with my siblings because I'm the oldest of five kids and I've always taken care of them. So that was, you know, that might mm -hmm. not have resonated quite as strongly. Mm -hmm. And in terms of the, of the parents, how did that manifest for you? Oh, that was amazing how spot on that was. Um, and it's, and it's an issue and it's, it's very interesting because I am, with my mother presently, <laughs> it's a very difficult taking care of an elder parent. And then all of these things coming up. And actually, I think this is going to be really helpful with my whole processing of how to look at my relationship. So I think that's another benefit of, of being able to explore these things. Awesome. 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 Well, thank you so much for sharing your chart with us. Thank uh, you. <laughs> you're very, very welcome. Uh, thank you all so much for giving me your time. Your, air your attention your love um once again please do uh check out our website sign up for FOCA if you're interested in practicing concrete event-based astrology please take a look at that this as you know was like a crash course <laughs> in reading that chart with it with 15 minutes left on the clock uh but you know if we could do that in 15 minutes imagine what we could do if we actually have time to prepare for the reading and also go through all of the steps that i teach within our astrologers certification program like i said at the end of the day the most important thing the most important service you will ever offer as an astrologer to your clients is the ability to read the chart accurately and read the chart well and you see that even in reading that chart there was a piece about the siblings that didn't quite land but the point is even if you say one thing that doesn't land or two things that don't land the entirety of a person's experience of having a reading with you should be that that reading itself was accurate and that the majority of the things you said within that reading were accurate and if you're going to study astrology with someone and that person does not have the ability to show you their ability to actually read the chart you should be studying with somebody else because that is literally the standard of what it means to be a great astrologer our ability to read the chart on the spot and do it accurately and do it well. So I do hope that you consider studying with me at the Oracular School of Astrology. I would love to have all of you in the class. So by all means, please check out our website. You can sign up for FOCA. It begins on the 1st of October, 2022. And if you're ready to not just master traditional astrology, but also give concrete event-based readings that both you and your clients can rely on, then by all means, sign up for our Astrologer Certification Program, which starts this 1st of October, 2022. Thank you so much for your time. Have a good one. Bye-bye.